Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, hosts Andrea Kilstedt and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders who are running capital campaigns. At CapitalCampaignToolkit.com, you can download a step-by-step guide for your capital campaign and get many other free resources. This podcast is recorded on a live webinar every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live session and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. Today, we are going to kick things off by talking about staffing your campaigns and expanding staff for campaigns and why you should do it, what the pros and cons are, how to talk to your board members and your executive director about staffing needs for a campaign. So as always, I'm going to let Andrea kick us off. So Andrea, why don't you talk about campaign staffing and why it's important to think about expanding staff if you are going into a capital campaign. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. You know, we get that question a lot. And and first of all, we hear a fair amount from from people who organizations that don't have development staff at all. Right. And I, you know, I'm always so moved by organizations that that have no have all volunteers driving a program. And it strikes me that it's particularly challenging for organizations like that when they move into a campaign to figure out who is in the leadership position and how to how they can make decisions and move things forward. So first I want to just just acknowledge the people who really are all volunteer and have no staff at all. And to suggest to you that this is a one a capital campaign campaign or a capacity campaign is a wonderful time and opportunity for you to think about bringing on staff for the campaign, if not going forward. One of the reasons you can do that is because the money you spend on staff at this point is going to come out of a campaign budget that will be in the amount of money you raise. So you have an opportunity through a capital campaign to actually go from being all volunteer to having somebody who can actually help make help make it happen. That's number one. Like number two is everyone always underestimates the amount of time, energy, and work it takes just to do the back end of capital campaigns, just to keep track of gifts that come in and make sure donors are acknowledged and schedule appointments and follow up and change meetings when they change and and, and set up events. And there is an unbelievable amount of work, much of which is not rocket science, right? Much of which is not particularly difficult only there is so much of it that somebody who is not good at it or when it is not when it is not centralized when it is not one person's role to make sure all of that happens it tends to fall between the cracks so we encourage you whether you are a really small organization or whether you're a large without staff or a larger organization with staff to think about staffing up as you go into your campaign in the context of having a budget that will come out of money that you will be raising 
through your campaign, not through your ongoing operating budget. That gives you an opportunity to grow. Amy, is that a good way to kick this off? Yeah, I think so. Uh, You know, one of the things that always makes us smile over here at the Capital Campaign Toolkit is when an organization calls and they're about to go into a capital campaign, and this happens regularly. And, you know, there's a development director generally who's reaching out to us or an executive director, and they are planning a campaign to raise to between two and 10 or more times what they raise annually without any additional help or resources. And, you know, that's just unrealistic. And so as you're thinking about your campaign, if your board and your key leadership staff does expect you to ramp up fundraising, for a campaign, it is likely that you're going to be raising between two and 10 times or more what you normally raise. You know, unless they think you're sitting twiddling your thumbs as it is, um, it's not practical to believe that without any additional staff that you can do this. And, you know, some organizations do hire a consultant to come in and do the work, but generally not. Uh, Generally, um, and a consultant is more in an advisory capacity. And so you do want to think about who will do that work, who you're going to bring in to replace or, you know, to manage some of those things, as Andrea said. All right. I think that that is good for now. Uh, Jacqueline is asking a question, which I think in part you answered, but maybe we can expand on a little bit about capital campaign staff staffing being built into the campaign budget. Yes. Um, so how can this be done? Right. And so that's part of the budgeting process when you're thinking about a campaign. And I don't know, I don't think you said this, Andrea, but we like to recommend about a 10 percent a budget plan for a capital campaign. So if you're planning to raise a million dollars for your campaign, you'd think about having a budget of about 10% of that or $100,000. And that's the money that you would use to do things like hire an additional staff person, hire campaign support and counsel, donor recognition, donor events, all kinds of things for your campaign. Um, but whether you need an administrative support person or a campaign manager or a major gift officer, it depends on who's already among your current staff staffing. What would you like to add to that, Andrea, or are we ready to go on to the next question? Well, I'm actually just looking through Capital Campaign Masters to see what there is there. Somebody has asked, uh, let's see, Andrea Welsh. Hi, Andrea. Uh, has asked about about uh, staff, whether we've written anything on staffing. And uh, a good place to look for written material is capitalcampaignmasters.com, which is sort of a sister organization to the toolkit. It has a longer, has more blog posts because we've, I've been writing on it for a very long time. And I see here, there are several articles on, on um, how to craft, on staffing up. So if you go to that blog and do a search, just type in staff in the search bar on the blog, you will come up with a number of things, some of which may be good for you to pass on to your, on to your board members. So that, that's yes. always a good resource for people to know about. 
I see a lot of chat and perhaps some questions in the chat box. I just want to remind you if it's a specific question you want us to answer, please do open up your Q&A box. Um, sometimes the chat box goes by so quickly that we can't find all the questions. Um, yes. In that blog also about campaign budgeting. Ah, okay. In fact, in including a budget, a downloadable budget form, I think we may have done that in the toolkit as well. I know that in the toolkit, one of the pieces of the toolkit itself for members is a very nice campaign budget budget form. Let's talk. Let me talk just for a minute more about this ten percent. And the re, in reality, campaigns cost. Um, less, the bigger the campaign. Percentage-wise, they cost less as your campaign goal is bigger and more as your campaign goal is smaller. But what we found is that round, simple numbers where it's easy for people to do the math, unless you have a really big campaign or a really teeny campaign, is not a bad way to start. And you can help your board members and your executive director get over sticker shock by saying, you know, let's realize that if we're going to raise, you know, a couple million dollars, it's probably going to cost us 10%. That's $200,000. Everybody can do that math in their heads. And then when they look shocked, you say, well, you know, the campaign goes on for three years. So that amount of money is what we're going to spend over a three-year period, right? And that helps people. So part of your job in hiring staff is to educate and train your board chair and your board members about what's going to be needed. Because as much as you know you need staff, you're not likely to be able to snap your fingers and write a job description and have the money to pay, right? So you have to do some you have to do some back-end work getting your board and executive director to understand why there should be a budget that the budget doesn't have to come out of your annual operating budget that you will be that, that the organization has to front end it but that they can get it back out of the money raised through the capital campaign those are all i think important things to know now what kind of staff to hire do we want to talk about that amy yeah i mean i think i think that there's a lot of different options depending on who you already have in your development office right so you're going to enhance and accentuate the skills and talents of your current staff. So if you have an executive director who's competent and capable at going out and asking for the biggest gifts, then you won't need to hire a major gift officer. Uh, you may need to hire an administrative support person to help with backend uh, database and thank you notes and all sorts of detail work. Um, if you have a development director who uh, is already overwhelmed with some of those things and they are excellent at those things, maybe you want to hire somebody who's more experienced at raising major gifts. So you just really need to take a look at who's in your existing uh, development office um, and and hire the skill for the skill set that you need. Um, Matt's asking, where do you find these kind of staff members? And I'd love to turn it over to the chat panel uh, to find out where people have hired staff members before. I mean, I'm happy to share uh, some of the resources that we use, but 
Um, I'd also love to know in the chat box what anybody else is doing. But I mean, some of the most obvious places are the Association of Fundraising Professionals has job postings. The Chronicle of Philanthropy has job postings. Judy is suggesting case. So if you're a, an educational uh, nonprofit, then CASE is an excellent one. Uh, Melissa is suggesting women in development. So there's lots of places to um, to share. Uh, Cindy says that she was hired by word of mouth, which is wonderful. I definitely recommend starting there. Once you figure out what kind of staff member you want, tell your board members, tell your volunteers, tell your clients, tell everybody you know. Um, that is definitely one of the best ways to to hire staff members. But um, I would say Association of Fundraising Professionals, Case, Chronicle of Philanthropy, lots of great places. Okay. So Amy, I wanna go back to this question of what kind of a staff person to hire. And here's a little test for all of you. So I want you all just to think for a second about um, how much of the time you spend in the weeds. How much of the time do you spend scheduling meetings, right? Inputting data of one sort or another, right? How much of your time proportionately do you spend doing administrative work? And how much of it proportionately do you spend out in the field talking to donors? And if you find that you can't, that you have a hard time getting yourself out talking to donors because you're swamped in administrative stuff, then guess who you should hire? somebody who can take a lot of that off your plate so you can be making the best use to best use of your time right ideally we like people who are seasoned in the organization to be the people who can get out and be talking to donors who can really do the you know the front the front end work the the outside work of the campaign and then hire someone who can do the inside work and if you have someone who is really good at that administrative administrative stuff, I'll tell you, it makes all the difference between night and day, because you can just say, you can write an email saying, do these three things, please. And then you can call a donor, right? And then, you, then it's done, right? And I do want to remind everybody that if you are a, a member of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, of course, we have job descriptions of every possible campaign role inside the toolkit. So uh, feel free to email me if you're not sure if you're a member uh, or if you wanna know how to access those, I'd be happy to share that. But um, we do have all types of job descriptions in there. You know, Gary has, uh, thanks Gary for your comment. Gary has suggested that consultants can be helpful in recruitment as well. And of course, every time anybody has someone to hire, they, they shoot their consultants an email, right? They, I don't know, I get several of those regularly, several of them, of them a month. You know, here's a job description, here's who we're looking for. Somebody will tell me they're looking for a job. So it's sort of an informal network because they figure our, our reach is big. So consultants are a good place. Um, okay, uh, let's see, what do we wanna talk about here? Let's go to Karen's, um, oh, Karen. She wants to know if it's possible to have this video to share with, with leadership. And yes, it is. We have both, both a recording, Karen, of these, these toolkit talks, but we also now have a, uh, a podcast. 
So, so by all means, share it broad, wide and broad. And, and we all, we would encourage you, Karen, to sign up for a strategy session with the toolkit. Sounds like you could use someone to, to talk to about, about how, how to get going in an appropriate way. And that's really what these strategy sessions do. So go to the Capital Campaign Toolkit um, website and there's an easy, easy link to sign up for one of those. Uh, all right. We want to go Mariette. Marriott's question? Sure. So Marriott, you're asking what would a campaign consultant typically charge to oversee a $1 million campaign so that you can budget for that? And I would say Marriott there, you are going to get a range of prices all over the board, depending on what type of consulting help you are looking for. And there is a wide range. So you may find that there are plenty of consultants that would charge so much that it might not make sense to use that particular firm, maybe a bigger firm for a million dollar campaign. There are solopreneur uh, consultants that charge uh, a wide range as well. Um, and then of course we do advising and support here at the Capital Campaign Toolkit. And we believe that we are priced um, in that sweet spot so that every campaign size can use a, one or other of the services at the toolkit. Andrea, do you want to be more specific than that in terms of pricing for consultants? Yeah, I have a couple of other things to add to that. Um, and Marianne, what you're going to find is that a million dollars is a hard campaign size to actually hire a consultant for. That it's much easier when you have a campaign of four or five or $10 million because then a consultant's fee, even if it's pretty significant fee, gets, you know, proportionately makes sense. But for a million dollar campaign, it's very hard for a consultant to, to charge what they want to be charging when the campaign goal is so relatively small. And I understand it may feel like a big goal to you. It probably does. But I, just to alert you that it's going to be hard to get a consultant's proposal that makes proportional sense in the context of a, of a million dollar campaign. Um, the, uh, let's see. And I want to go to Jacqueline's, uh, question here. Should current staff be included in the 10% budget? Um, that's an excellent question, Jack Jacqueline. And it's, it's a little complex. So bear with me just, just for a moment. It is certainly true that you and other key staff members will be working on the campaign. And one approach is to take some percentage of your time and the same proportion of your salary and, and count it towards your campaign budget. Now, that's a perfectly legit thing to do. Here's the challenge of it. When you do that, your operating budget over the next couple of years is going to look terrific because it's only supporting a, a certain percentage of your ongoing work. And when, at, towards the end of the campaign, when the campaign is over, it may well be shocking to find that your beautiful operating budget, which looks so great in the context of the campaign, all of a sudden has to take back on the additional, your additional staff. So if you're going to count your, a portion of your salary towards the campaign, be sure that as the campaign winds down, you reapportion it and you gradually move it back over to annual, 
to annual support. I've seen many organizations go awry with this and all of a sudden they have a deficit budget because they forgot that they were going to have to have to reapportion their their salary back. Right. So when Andrea says move this over gradually, so assuming your campaign is three years and you want to charge 10% of your development director in year one to the campaign, maybe in year two, you'd only charge 6%. And then in year three of the campaign, 3%. So that you're gradually moving all of that um, staffing charge back to the annual fund line because you're not going to get rid of your development director when your campaign ends, or I certainly hope you're not. Um, In fact, often what happens is the opposite, is that the organization has grown enough that you can keep that staff member that you've hired on for the campaign. Not always, of course, um, but, but often. Uh, you are able to to make space in your annual budget for your campaign staff, or at least some of them. Right. So Aaron has asked a question that's a good one for the chat here, which has to do with annual reports and how do we feel about listing donors by giving levels uh, versus listing all donors alphabetically without referring to the amount donated. Now, Amy and I do have feelings about that, but let's hear in the chat what you what you do. Is there anyone who lists their donors alphabetically in your annual report? As opposed to by giving level? As a, right. And or as opposed to any other way. I don't know. Are there other, other ways? Uh, well, what's that? that? Well, if it's an organization that has multiple locations, you might list them by location. And then within that, you could do it either alphabetically or by giving amount, right? Or you can divide them up by corporate gifts, foundation gifts, and individual gifts. And then you can list them. So it's, it's actually an important, complicated question. Yes. And and so we've gotten a variety of answers here in the chat. So Miriam says, uh, oh, oh, we lift various major levels. Uh, Oh, that's Lynn. Sorry. Things are going by so quickly. Miriam says we don't even list our donors, um, (laughs) but think that they should be listed alphabetically. So there's an argument to be made for not listing people at all. Liz is saying by alpha order. Melissa says by giving level to incentivize future giving, Um, you know, and the list goes on and on. And I think that there are pros and cons. What I would say about it is that it's important to think about the culture at your organization and what your donors have come to expect and what they would take well to. Uh, You know, you might even do a a little survey to ask your donors how they'd like to be recognized or what they'd like to see um, to get some engagement. But, you know, I always caution people when they're listing donors for the first time, just to make sure that your data is in good working order because you don't want to spell somebody's name wrong. You don't want to list them in the wrong category. And so as much as it is, I think, nice to recognize donors, you do want to be careful uh, because it can it can backfire on you. Yes. And um, Melissa has reminded everybody, be sure that you ask for permission to have put a donor's name in. You should do that in on the pledge form. Yeah. So you don't have to go back to them. Get get that permission or lack of permission right when you get when you get the gift. It'll save you a lot of time, a lot of time and energy. And it is a matter of culture, I, I think. But 
We often think about, about how the donor feels when we ask that question of how we should list people. Um, but I'm interested in knowing, and I'll start, start this by telling you that, that every time I go to an event of an organization I support and there's a program, do I look for my name in the program and see where I fit? You betcha. And I'll bet you do too. Right? It's, and it's always interesting to see who gives the big money and whether I'm in the middle or at the bottom, or if it's a small organization, am I at the top and how that makes me feel. So I think, I think one of the important questions to ask is this, and somebody set it up here. But one of the reasons where we list people by giving amount is that we want to help them understand what the giving amounts are and that they have options and to see what community they want to be part of. And I think for many people, even though people won't tell you that, they won't tell you that they want to be part of this group or that, you know, people, people look at naming, they look at lists of donors and they want, and in doing that, they get to understand themselves and their own giving better, and they get to understand the organization better. So I wouldn't lightly not do that. There are times when you shouldn't, but I wouldn't lightly pass it up. Okay. All right. So Natasha is asking, how should a nonprofit respond to someone who's offering to run a capital campaign or similar fundraiser for free? Am I entitled to question their capacity at risk of losing their generosity? Yes, you, must, <laughs> you are. You must question it. You must yes. question it, right? So, uh, and listen, there, to to some degree, you know the the cliche of you get what you pay for applies here. And so I always proceed with caution. Yeah, Gary's saying in the comments, run. All um, in caps. <laughs> yeah, all in caps, run. Um, I, I think you want to be really, really cautious uh, of somebody who's offering to do some, you know, run a capital campaign for you for free. If they're a longtime volunteer and they've been with you forever, and they come through, you know, anytime you ask them for something, it's totally different. So, I mean, I think, you know, there's context here, obviously, which we don't have. Um, so it depends who it is, but, and, and what the motivation is and, you know, why they wouldn't just disappear in six months or, you know, are they really going to be around for the long haul and what's their experience and why are they volunteering? I would ask a lot of questions. Well, and here's the challenge. You know, I, I believe volunteers are incredibly important, right? They really are for, for campaigns. And you have to be careful because it's very hard to fire them. It's very hard to fire them. And so in some roles, that's okay. You can sort of sideline them. What they do is not so important. But if they are the linchpin for the campaign and they don't function, or it turns out they don't write well enough, or they don't follow through well enough, or their work is sloppy, or, I mean, any number of other things that can happen, right? They simply don't do the work, or they don't know what they're doing, or it's very difficult then to go to somebody who's volunteered, particularly if they have some status in the community, and say to them, you know, thank you so much, Susan, we really appreciate it, and you're fired, right? Lots of problems with that. So you have to be super careful before you let that move ahead. So 
Now the good news, let's talk about the positive side of this. Your campaign needs a ton of volunteers and relies on lots of volunteers. So how about if this person is a co-chair or a committee member? That's a wonderful way to use a volunteer uh, to help run your campaign. And that may be the perfect spot for them. Um, So when you say that they're offering to run a capital campaign for free, um, that is the role of a campaign chair or, you know, and when you say run, there are different roles for volunteers versus paid staff, but it might be a wonderful opportunity, especially you're worried about losing their generosity if they're one of your bigger donors, um, then campaign chair or co-chair or campaign committee member is probably the perfect spot for them. But proceed with caution, ask lots of questions. So, and here's the final piece for me from anyway on this, which is to say that that anytime you hire anyone, whether it is a volunteer and you're hiring them too, or doing it for free, or a staff person, you can tell a lot about how they're going to function by having them jump through a few hoops and watching carefully to see how they do that. Right. Ask them to, you know, if if they can schedule a meeting with, you know, with two or three people to talk about this and then watch and see how they schedule it and if they follow up. And if it's going to be someone you have to double check all the time, you're going to be in trouble. And if you ask someone to do a small task and you look carefully at how they do it, the chances are very good that you will have seen everything you need to see in order to know whether you want to work with this person or not. And that's true of hiring a consultant and it's true of bringing on a board member and it's true of hiring a staff member. People are remarkably consistent and they seldom function better once you've brought them on board than they did before you brought them on board. Right. Think about it. In the interview, they're on their best behavior. (laughs) If there's concerning behavior at the beginning, it is going to only go downhill from there. It's not going to get better. And you know what What people do, what many people do, and I've done it myself, is, is we tend to forgive people for mistakes, right? We tend to say, oh, well, they really meant to do such and such. Or, you know, there are five typos in this email, but, but they just must have been doing it really quickly. Instead of saying, oh, my goodness, there are going to be five typos in every email they send. Or the email wasn't written well. Well, guess what? The email wasn't written well. It wasn't grammatical. It wasn't compelling. Guess what you just learned? So take it seriously and, and set, them, set up those little tasks in a way. I'm sorry. Set up those little tasks in a way. Oh, put me on mute. Would you hear uh, something? I don't know. What okay. So. We're going to take a little uh, commercial break while you guys think of some more questions you want us to answer. And I just want to remind everybody of two things. One is what the Capital Campaign Toolkit is. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders going through capital campaigns. And we provide all the tools, the resources, the support, the guidance that you could possibly need 
if you are thinking about going through a capital campaign. So if you are considering one, I do hope that you'll think of us. Um, we are different from traditional consultants in so many ways. Uh, we would love to offer you a free strategy session to discuss your campaign and talk about those differences and, and how we might be able to help you. Um, second, I want to... Uh, let everybody know that Andrea and I are planning a webinar specifically to talk to your board members and your executive directors, because we feel that there are so many great capital campaign questions and capacity campaign questions and comprehensive campaign questions that we would love to help you answer um, for your uh for your executive directors and board members. So that's going to be coming up on February 2nd, I believe. Is that the correct date, Andrea? February 2nd, Tuesday, February 2nd at one o'clock. And we will be emailing all of you and you'll see it in our social media feed when we have the registration page up in the next day or two. But we do hope that you'll invite your board members and executive director uh, to that because we're targeting it just for them. Right. And that actually brings us back to this question of staffing. So we got a nice loop here today. And why does it bring us to the question of staffing? Well, as we began by saying, you can know that you really should hire staff for the campaign and that it's going to cost you something and that it's going to come out of your campaign budget. But guess what? You're going to need your board members and your executive director, depending on their relationship, to sign off on that. And the question is, how do you line them up to do that? It may well be that you're the one who is, other than knowing there should be a capital campaign, it may well be that you're the only person who has, who has some idea of what this is going to take. And the question is, how do you go about sort of training your board? How do you go about informing your board about what they're, what they're going to be involved in? What is a campaign? How? How is it going to affect them? How, how should they be thinking about this, about this budgeting? And you will need the executive director by your side, the board chair, maybe the head of the development committee. And you need to think constructively, not just in a half, half sort of way. You need to think constructively about how actually to bring them on board. There are a variety of ways to do that. And I, I'm interested in knowing, put in the chat, if you, have, if you have undertaken to educate your board early on the campaign and your executive director and how you've gone about doing that, um, we, we have a variety of things that we think about doing and offer. We actually have a terrific uh, ebook on, uh, for board members on that. Amy, I wonder how we can... Can we get a link to that? Can you find a link to that? Yeah, I'll look for the link to that in a minute. You can find the yeah, link. Certainly people can email me and I'm happy to send them the, right. the board member's guide to capital campaigns. Um, it's a pretty good piece. If I do say so myself, we worked we worked hard on it. And so <laughs> you can send information, but but you may want to have, you may want to see if you can get your board to set aside a portion of some board meetings to talk about the capital campaign very early on. 
doesn't need to be a full board board meeting, although it might be. You could also have a special board meeting, which is specifically for the campaign. You can bring someone in from your community who has done a capital campaign, an expert who has done a capital campaign for, you know, your hospital campaign to come and talk to your board about what that took. But I think you should think carefully about the various things you can do to prepare your board for a campaign so that when you go to them and say, we are going to need additional staff and we should do it earlier rather than later, right, that they won't look at you as though you're crazy, that they'll have some idea that this is a big undertaking and why it is they should be willing to invest. So maybe that's in some sense one of your first jobs as you're preparing for a development director's first job as you're preparing for a campaign. Because to the extent that your board members and your executive director feel like they know what they're doing and they they understand where they're going and what's going to be required, it will make your life easier as you go. Amy, I know you've been busy getting this. Excellent. I've got it and I'm going to put it in the chat box and I will announce it for those of you listening on the podcast. Um, Gary's asking about advice you have about post uh, campaign regarding staffing. And, you know, he's saying his hope would be a very successful campaign that takes you to the next level of giving in general, and you will need those staff members to continue as you continue to raise all your fundraising boats. And I think that that's exactly right. I mean, if you can raise your capital campaign, you'll have generally more donors because you've done marketing, you've had some publicity from your campaign, your annual fund will have grown and expanded. Uh, One of the things that lots of people fear is that when they start a capital campaign, that the campaign's gonna suck up all the funding and that their annual fund will go down the tubes. And that absolutely doesn't happen. Andrea, why don't you, while I'm posting this link, why don't you talk about why your annual fund doesn't tank? It actually grows and expands. And Gary, to Gary's point, you can keep some of your campaign staff yes. and post-campaign. Yes, 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 I'll do that. Let me first ask, answer Jacqueline's question here about a campaign board as an interesting concept. You know, Jacqueline, in the can, in a campaign, we we work you work with a whole series of ad hoc committees that sort of function. You have a campaign steering committee that functions really as a campaign board. And recommends to the organization's board, right? So there's an interesting relationship between your organization's real board, standing board, and a capital campaign committee, which is sort of the camp, like the campaign board. So I like, I like that, that way of, of thinking. Um, the uh, post-campaign, ideally, you know, here's what happens sometimes. They, this is the worst case scenario. That it, an organization go, spends all this time, energy, and effort having a camp, capital campaign to raise $5 million, let's say. They actually succeed in raising $5 million, right? Very successful campaign. By the end of it, the executive director is tired, the development director is tired, and the board chair is tired, right? Everybody's been working very hard. It's unfortunate but true that a fair number of people either retire or leave at the end of a campaign. And if an organization doesn't make a concerted effort to actually look and see how they take the lessons of the campaign and the relationships built during the campaign and sustain them forward, it's likely or at least possible that it comes to a, to a cliff 
right? And you fall off the cliff and all the work you've done, all this, or some of the work you've done, let me put it that way. It's not so dire. Some of the work you've done isn't brought to its natural fruition from a campaign, which in the best case scenario simply grows to the next campaign, right? Or a capacity campaign, or you don't want to build these relationships and have people committed at a significant level and then go dark, so it's terribly important that you work on on what's um, on on who is going to hold the reins and continue the effort of the campaign long after the campaign is finished. I, I do want to touch on though something that I brought up earlier, and that is you know the idea of your annual fund tanking during a campaign. And here's how you prevent that. Right. Is that when you go out and you make your campaign asks, you are talking about a double ask to most or all your donors, and letting them know that their the first dollars they give during a campaign go towards the annual fund in whatever amounts they would normally have given to your annual fund, that first and foremost, you need their annual fund gift to sustain your ongoing programs and services. And then anything over and above that is towards the campaign. And so, you know, that that's how you make sure that your, uh, that your annual fund doesn't go down the drain. Okay, so I've posted the board member's guide to capital campaigns. It's at capitalcampaigntoolkit.com slash board hyphen members hyphen guide. It's in the chat box, but if you're listening on the podcast, it's capitalcampaigntoolkit.com backslash board hyphen members hyphen guide. Okay, and you can find it there. So good. Um, Andrea, a little earlier, somebody's question mentioned the idea of a feasibility study, and they were just letting us know that they hadn't done a feasibility study yet. And I think it's an important thing. I would love to know in the chat box, who's thinking about a feasibility study, who's about to go into one, who doesn't hasn't decided if they're doing one yet. Um, We have very specific ideas here at the Capital Campaign Toolkit about how organizations can and might think about testing the feasibility of a capital campaign. Why don't we talk about that for a couple of minutes? Good. And do let us know. Do chat in whether you've done one, whether you're thinking about one, the pros and cons of them. Give us your thoughts about about feasibility studies while we talk to you about our thoughts on feasibility studies. Um, Our thoughts break down this way. We think there are three kinds of feasibility studies. So the first kind is what you might think of as a traditional feasibility study. It's one that Amy has done with clients and I have done over many years with clients. And that's where you hire an outside consulting firm to come in and to go and you to help you prepare material and to go and talk to your largest donors to get a sense of, and then recommend to your board how much money you think you actually can raise. And now in a feasibility study of any kind, you're really testing a plan. You're not just going to find out how much money can we raise in a vacuum. You're saying, how much money can we raise for this particular project, right? So you need your project plans to be pretty well in hand. And then you're going to talk to your largest owners to see whether that's a project they're going to be interested in and whether they will eventually, when the time is right, whether they will consider supporting it. So first kind of study is a consultant 
who goes out and talks to your donors and puts together a report and gives a report, presents a report to your board that says, yes, you can, or no, you can't. And here's how much money you might be able to raise through your study. And here are the things you need to do to get ready. That's traditional study number one. Second kind of feasibility study is what we call a guided feasibility study. And that is where you bring on someone, and I think at the moment we're the only people who are doing these, but we are total proponents of them, where you bring on the capital campaign toolkit and you work with an advisor there. And that that advisor helps you prepare for a study and then trains you and the key leaders in your organization so that you're going out and talking to your largest owners that you're not sending the consultant out, but you're actually using that opportunity to build relationships with your key donors. And you're doing it in a way that actually brings on honest, open conversations about how your donors feel feel about what it is you're planning. And then we help you put together the materials so that, and, and help co-present it to your board. So the board has confidence in what the findings are. So we have a traditional study, a guided feasibility study, and then we have a do-it-yourself study where you simply decide you're going to pick, you know, 8, 10, 12, 15 of your major donors, and you're simply going to go talk to them about the project, not to ask them for gifts, but you're just going to go and talk to them and find out what it is they think. And for some organizations, if you're pretty, pretty sophisticated, you probably can do that. We find that for most organizations, you either need a consultant, an outside consultant, or you need an approach like ours where we guide you in the process of, of, excuse me, of conducting those those interviews. Yeah. So, uh, you you know, the reason to do it this way is because you do want to build relationships with those biggest donors and potential donors before you ask them for a gift. So, you know, one of the fatal flaws, in our opinion, of the traditional model, even though it's tried and true, is that it is a real missed opportunity for nonprofit leaders to develop those relationships. They're sending in a stranger, a consultant, to do those interviews. Um, And so they're missing an opportunity to sit down and get comfortable with those donors before they have to go in a few weeks or months later to ask those those people for a gift, which is why we, you know, we advocate this guided feasibility study model. Um, But There are pros and cons to all three approaches, honestly, and depending on what situation you are in, uh, you need to pick the model that works for you. And of course, inside the toolkit, we talk about all the pros and cons of each model and provide different materials depending on which of the three models you choose. So yes, the biggest con is not doing a study at all, right? That's if you are going into a capital campaign to raise a whole lot more money than you ever raised before, you don't want to go in blind. You don't want to go in saying, well, we can raise a million dollars or five or $10 million. We're just going to ask some rich people for money. And then you go ask them for money and they say, no, this doesn't interest me. And then you have done damage to your organization. 
So a feasibility study is the keeps you from going awry, keeps you from going, taking your organization down the wrong path. And if you do go down the wrong path, it can be damaging in a bigger way. You lose credibility. You, you don't build the relationships with the major donors that you should build. You put your board in a compromised position. If you don't aren't pretty sure you're going to be able to you're going to be able to have a successful campaign, right? Unsuccessful campaigns are bad. You should not have one. (laughs) That sounds right. A feasibility step is the first step on the road to a successful campaign because you will learn where the pitfalls are and what you need to do to get ready to have a successful campaign. And that's one of the key reasons uh, to do a feasibility study. Uh, You know, Jacqueline says one of the pitfalls is that they they can say the donors say they just made a large gift to another campaign that you didn't know about if you don't go talk to them in advance of your campaign. So, you know, it's a good opportunity to go and connect with those donors and find out where they are um, in terms of the support of your campaign prior to actually kicking off. Uh, Miriam also saying that they're about to go into a campaign, uh, a feasibility study, but need to get our materials ready first. And that's absolutely true. You do want to have a, a significant portion of your campaign plan ready in order to share with your donors. That being said, I will throw out one caution, and that is that you do not want to take a campaign brochure or a case for support that's highly produced and, and laid out and for color out to your donors during a feasibility study. And that's one huge mistake that boards often make. Um, and some consultants even make. They think they need to present very highly produced, uh, beautiful materials to donors and potential donors during the feasibility study process. But of course, what happens then is that you're asking for feedback, but if your campaign materials look complete and finished, there's no feedback to be given. Your plans look finished and finalized. And so why would they give you feedback if you've already created that fancy brochure? So don't do that. Uh, Have a well thought out uh, Word document with draft stamped across the top so that they do give you that valuable feedback that you really are looking for. No, Amy, I've been really pleased with our, our work on these donor discussion guides. We've been we've been working for the last year or two on coming up with a format for, for donor discussion guides, which are not a case for support. It's a simple two-page docu- document, big two-page document that 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 simply is a graphic guide for a discussion doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the about the the uh, the campaign or about the project but it gives you something to to enough to work with your donor about so it's you're not just doing it off the top of your head we found those to be very helpful very very uh, it's it's an interesting approach that isn't the case for support but is really a, a sort of a graphic guide and these days when people read less, that turns out to be a pretty good, a pretty interesting and good approach. Um, 
Yeah, Gary, Gary has also suggested in the chat, you know, keep your campaign materials flexible, change, changes the name of a capital campaign. It's true, changes the norm from his, Gary, you've done lots of campaigns, lots of big campaigns. I know that about you. And, and you do need to stay flexible, right? Through the campaign until you finally kick it off, even the goal remains flexible. So, which is another reason you don't want a fancy brochure up front, because because once you have a fancy brochure that states the goal, then you're stuck with that goal, which is not a good idea. You want to keep that flexible until your largest don't largest gifts come in. So, um, so yeah, Pam, I know you you were involved in some of the early early pieces of these uh, graphic graphic pieces from Pam. We took sketchy graphic draft and asked for advice and feedback. And you know the old saying, if you ask for advice, you if you want advice, ask for money. And if you want money, ask for advice. And that really is true. Did I did I tell you, Amy, that that my mother, my mother, there were five of us growing up in my family, and and my mother said to all of us at various times, girls, if you want to be successful in life, there's one question you need to remember. <laughs> question what do you think she would say what do you think (laughs) excellent what a good lesson for all those girls right yes what do you think Uh, that's what you want to ask your donors right you know all the time we're saying ask your donors for advice and feedback and this really is the perfect opportunity when you're creating your campaign plans and you're developing your campaign plans this is the most perfect opportunity to involve those big potential donors early, to get them involved and have them feel engaged and literally and figuratively invested in your campaign because they will be providing feedback and advice. Does that mean that you have to take all the advice they give? No, absolutely not. You let them know that you're asking 10 or 20 people for advice and cumulatively you'll be putting that advice together and finalizing your campaign plans based on all the feedback you collect. So you don't have to take every single piece of advice that every single donor gets gives you. I know some people are super nervous. What if somebody gives me advice, well, you know, we can't use or we don't want. Um, well, that's why you're going to multiple people. And as long as you are a really good listener, and you thank the person for their feedback and advice and let them know that it will be considered seriously and follow up with them and say, hey, listen, you had this really great, interesting idea. Um, we got so many great ideas and, and feedback, and this is the direction that the campaign committee and the board has decided to go. As long as they feel heard, um, it doesn't matter as much if you take every piece of their advice. You know, people have a wonderful way of of re-remembering. <laughs> of of um, if they gave you a piece of advice A and you did piece of advice B, it's not uncommon for people to think they gave you piece of advice B. Right? <laughs> we all do that. We all sort of make up the past, right, to suit what's. What Amy, I wanted to say, do you know that that's that's the way you and I met? No. So here's the story. I'll tell you a story about Amy. So Amy, Amy being a smart, a smart young person in the fundraising business was making her way and she decided she was going to invite, I don't know, six, six women. I think it was all women in the, 
who were in the fundraising business, who were doing things particularly online, and whose careers were perhaps a, a step or two ahead of hers. So she picked the people in the field who were quite well known, right? She, I had written some books by then. Amy actually had already written a book, but and she picked Gail Perry and me and three or four other other people who were quite well established in the field. And she invited us all to a all to a meeting in New Jersey to talk about ways we saw building a business online and the fundraising business, right? And she asked us all for advice. It was amazing. They flew in from all over the country. I couldn't believe it. So yes, it was excellent. All right. That that's a good trip that down. That led us to where we are today, Amy. It, it's true. It's true. Look at that. Who knew that, you Who know, eight, eight years ago when I invited Andrea to give me some advice and feedback and join this group of prestigious women I had amazingly put together. Here we are uh, a decade later in partnership. All right. Great, everybody. This was a great uh, toolkit talk. We're just delighted that you joined us. Uh, We'll see you on the podcast or on our weekly toolkit talks. Remember, if you want to find any of the resources we've mentioned today or sign up for a strategy session, please go to the Capital Campaign Toolkit website, and we would be delighted to talk with you individually about your campaign. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Amy's going to take a nap to get better. Bye, everybody. for getting up and showing up today. It was good. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com.